This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. I feel that our institutions and values are under assault both from an external source, the Russians, and from an internal source, our own president. And I felt I had to speak up on behalf of the great men and women of the intelligence community. How worried are you? I worry about it a lot. This is a real test of our resilience as a country, as a system of governance. In an era of alternative facts where truth is relative, this is very dangerous uh, for us as a nation. James Clapper is arguably one of the best intelligence officers ever produced by our country. He is certainly one of the most experienced. He served as the nation's fourth director of national intelligence, the undersecretary of defense for intelligence, and the director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, all of those following a 32-year career as a military intelligence officer, which included Turs as the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, the head of the intelligence for the Joint Forces Command in Korea, the chief of Air Force Intelligence during the first Gulf War, and as a first lieutenant commanding an intelligence unit in Vietnam. Jim has just written a New York Times best-selling book, Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Career in Intelligence. I had a chance to sit down with Jim to talk about his book and much more. We will be right back with Jim after a word from our sponsor. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morell. Podcast presented by Raytheon. From connected devices to infrastructure to critical mission systems, Raytheon crosses networks, markets, and continents, defending every side of cyber to make the world a safer place. Jim, it is an honor to have you on Intelligence Matters, and it is always very good to see you. Well, thanks, Michael, and it's especially great to be uh, doing this with you. Your book, Jim, Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Career in Intelligence, is an absolutely terrific read. In fact, I think it's a must-read for anyone who is interested in intelligence, national security, our current political situation, and indeed the future of our country, and I have a lot to ask you about. Coming from you, that, uh, that, that means a lot. 
Michael, thank you very much. Let me start by asking you about the experience you had of flying in a U-2 spy plane, which <laughs> jumped out at me when I read the book. Well, it was a uh, thrill of a lifetime. And uh, the occasion was when uh, I was uh, director of intelligence for what was then Strategic Air Command, now nominally uh, Strategic Command, and had the opportunity to take an orientation flight in a U-2 trainer, which, of course, is a two-seater. And it was really uh, transcendental, I guess, being at 70,000 feet. We flew out of Beale Air Force Base in California, could see virtually the whole northwest coast and really pick out prominent milestones and that sort of thing. And so, and of course, you're right on the edge of space. So you look up and it goes from purple to black. And it was uh, a mind-boggling experience I'll never forget. And your experience explaining Edward Snowden to President Obama (laughs) jumped out at me. Well, you can relate, Michael. Obviously, uh, I I know there are occasions where, you know, you had a a tough session to do in the the Oval Office, and that certainly was. And uh, it was tough for a couple of reasons, as as I describe in the book. One, who didn't know much at that point. And, of course, there was a tremendous feeling of disappointment that uh, we had let the nation down and certainly let President Obama down. And and, um, he was pretty upset and uh, understandably so. I can relate. I had to tell President Bush in December of 2001 that Osama bin Laden had escaped from Tora Bora. Um, <laughs> and it was, uh, it was a similar reaction. Yes, there's sometimes where you just have to resolve that you're going to be the messenger that gets shot. I know you describe this in the book. It's almost better as if they would yell at you, it would be better. It's that sense of disappointment exactly. um, that's tougher. And Jim, I really want to get to Russia and its interference in the 2016 election. But before I do that, I want to ask you about North Korea and Iran. So you went to North Korea in 2014 at the request of President Obama. What was the purpose of that trip, and what was North Korea like, and what were the North Koreans like who you met? The purpose was to retrieve two of our citizens who had been incarcerated under hard labor conditions in North Korea. Kenneth Bay and, and, and Matthew Miller. But in the course of the, of the visit, of course, had uh, occasion to engage with two senior North Koreans. One, the Minister of State Security, who has since fallen into disfavor. He was a political four-star general. And then the second one, the principal interlocutor was the very same Kim Jong-chol, who has been the interlocutor on behalf of Kim Jong-un with President Trump during Just his the visit and delivered the letter and all mm-hmm. that. And at the time, he was head of what's called the Reconnaissance General Bureau, which is their GRU equivalent, uh, an amalgam of special operations and intelligence. And he touted himself as my uh, counterpart. And he was very, very acrimonious. He hosted a wonderful Korean meal. I sort of became an aficionado of uh, Korean food ever since I served there in the mid-'80s, and it was one of the best Korean dinners I've ever had, 13 courses. But the conversation and the atmosphere was very tense and very nasty, and he was stridently anti-American. And I'm convinced the only reason he was there is because Kim Jong-un directed him to host me for this dinner. The overwhelming impression I got, which I I wasn't prepared for, I thought I had some understanding in North Korea, was the sense of, a paranoia and siege mentality that prevails uh, in North Korea. Actually, that visit had a big impact on uh, my attitude about North Korea and and what I think we should do. So what are those lessons learned, right, from your experiences with North Korea, which date way back and kind of culminated in this trip you took? Well, 
one lesson is that the only way ahead here with uh, North Korea, and if there's you know any hope of resolving this, it has to be through uh, diplomacy, through negotiation. So that's that's why I think the summit is a good thing. Many people feel that you know it was a huge concession just for uh, President Trump to agree to participate in the summit. I thought it was a good thing. One thing that struck me when I was there is that the North Koreans, at least the elite, those I dealt with, were kind of stuck on their narrative. And as reflected in the White House talking points that I was assigned to deliver, we were kind of stuck on our narrative. And the only way this, these narratives can change, I believe, is if the bigger partner shows a way ahead and makes a concession, if you want to call it that, by agreeing to meet. I th- so I thought that was a good thing, and I, 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 I supported the president's acceptance of that invitation. On Iran, Jim, you wrote something in the book that I wanted to ask you about. You wrote uh, about the Iran nuclear deal that at the time you thought we had given too much and had gotten too little. What did you mean by that? Well, I thought we made a lot of financial concessions uh, to them. And as well, we kind of fell off on some demands we had for freeing up people, predominantly dual citizens, who had been incarcerated on trumped-up charges by uh, the Iranians. You know, I worry like others do about the length of the treaty. But having said all that, I ended up favoring uh, the agreement, what's now called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, because... If I ask myself the question, which would you rather have, a state-sponsored terrorism with a nuclear weapons capability or a state-sponsored terrorism without a nuclear weapons capability, I think take, I would take the latter. What I wish the administration had done is rather than rejecting or backing out of the agreement was to use it as a building block and as leverage to get after some of the other nefarious behavior of, of the Iranians, notably their involvement in Yemen with, through the Houthis and support to Hezbollah, support to Assad, etc. Do you think it would have been possible to get more out of the Iranians had we pushed? I do, because I think one more point here is, of course, that by our doing that, we play to the hardliner narrative in Iran. And I, I personally believe there is a revolution underfoot in Iran to change and reform the nature of their, of, of their society. So... We lose leverage when we do that. And I do believe the Iranians, the the moderates, as opposed to the hardliners, do want to rejoin the international community, particularly with respect to the international economy. And I I think we've lost an opportunity to exploit that. Okay, on Russia. And let me start by saying, Jim, that I think your outlining of what happened during the 2016 election is the best discussion of that issue that I've seen. Well, thank you. I could actually not put the book down as I read those pages. So a handful of questions here. And maybe the best place to start as a reminder to our listeners, what were the intelligence community's main judgments with regard to the Russian meddling? So there were actually, specifically in the intelligence community assessment that we... uh, provided to President-elect Trump and then published in an unclassified version that very afternoon on the 6th of January 2017. There were essentially three findings, and they sort of paralleled the uh, evolving objectives of the Russians. The first, of course, which they were eminently successful at, was to sow doubt, discord, discontent in the American public. And they did that, and regrettably, we're a ripe target for that. Secondly, of course, because starting with a strong personal animus that President Putin Uh, had and has for the Clintons, but especially Hillary Clinton, 
a concerted effort to diminish and demean her campaign, her candidacy, by any any means they could. And this stemmed from specifically from the blame that Putin assigned to her for instigating what he thought was a color revolution in the Russian election of 2011. So very strong personal animus towards her. And as time evolved, because the Russians didn't take Mr. Trump seriously either at first, but of course when he when he actually emerged as the Republican nominee, they too took him seriously and then came to the conclusion rapidly that he would be a far better candidate for them, principally because he was a businessman, he had been to Russia, he and most importantly, he wouldn't beat the Russians up about human rights abuses. So for many reasons, you know, they favored, strongly favored Donald Trump and strongly disfavored Hillary Clinton. And you haven't seen anything since the publication of the unclassified assessment that would change your views with regard no. to those judgments? No, absolutely not. In fact, I think in an unclassified context, the indictment that became public in February indicting the 13 Russians and I think three corporate concerns of Russia was sort of served as a bookend to the intelligence community assessment that had been rendered in January 2017 and in a sense validated our findings. And I've seen nothing to change uh, change that view. So there were, there were a variety of different things that the Russians did here. One was the use of cyber tools to steal information and then give it to WikiLeaks. Another was trying to get into state and local voting systems. And then another was the use of social media, right, to get the message out and uh, et cetera. When did we as a country see each of those things? Well, I can't quote you the chronology, but I think for context, you know, the Russians are famous for interfering in elections, theirs, other people's, and in ours, for that matter, going back to the 60s. The difference here was never as direct and multidimensional as they did in the election of, of 2016. So starting in the uh, 2015, but particularly through the spring to summer to fall, early fall of 2016, these things began to evolve and we we became more and more aware of the magnitude and diversity of what they were doing to include the and the big difference here, the big enabler for them was the extensive and astute use of social media, fake news implants, trolls, ads, not to mention the very sophisticated propaganda approach against Hillary Clinton. And one of the things I try to describe in the book is the striking parallelism in what the Russian Russians were saying and doing and what the Trump campaign was doing and saying. Don't assert, I don't allege collusion, don't know that, but the parallelism was such that they were almost an echo chamber, particularly when it came to Hillary Clinton, describing her alleged scandals and her alleged maladies, both physical and mental. And the parallelism between the two was really striking. But again, I have to emphasize no proof, direct proof of collusion. Is there, is there a benign explanation? To that concurrence? Well, I suppose there could be. I have trouble thinking up what that might be, having some understanding from a technical perspective of what they did. And, of course, you already mentioned the hacking activity and other active measures they took, the reconnoitering, I'll call it, of state registration voter rolls, which 
interestingly enough, in some states is maintained by contractors. Uh, so we saw at least 21, maybe as many as 39 cases of where the Russians were reconnoitering. They never did anything, the best we could tell, either exploiting or deleting the material. My own theory was that was for future reference. So the Russians did a lot of things that unfolded, particularly during from the spring on of 2016. Uh, so there wasn't any one dramatic revelation point where the light bulb went on. And, but I will say that in my 50-plus years in intel- intelligence, I've seen a lot of bad things, but never anything that disturbed me as much as this because this is a fundamental attack on our fundamental fundamental pillars of our political system. One of the reasons, Jim, I asked about the chronology is because one of the things I was struck by in the statement that you and Secretary of Homeland Security Jay Johnson put out at the end of October, talked about the hacking and the WikiLeaks piece and talked about the hacking into election systems, but didn't mention the social media. Uh, no, it didn't. And uh, I, I don't have a good reason for that. Um, but, they also mentioned, importantly, that this was the shots are being called at the highest levels right, of the Russian government. Right, right. It was put out on the 7th of October, about a month before the the election. And we had a lot of debate about whether to put it out or not. The arguments for not doing so and not being more public about the Russian threat earlier was if we did so, would we be amping up or amplifying uh, the magnitude of the threat? And what President Obama was personally concerned about, I think, was the appearance and substance, I suppose, of his putting a hand on the scale in favor of one candidate to the disfavor uh, of the other. All of this against the rather charged political environment of the election and Mr. Trump's assertion that the election would be rigged since he appeared to be trying to sort of prep the battlefield, to use a military expression, for what even he thought would be a loss. So all those factors and kind your of mid- view was we need to get this out. We need to talk about this. Was your was your view at the table? Well, I, it was my view that we we should. Right. But uh, I'm just trying to outline what the countervailing factors were at the time. So we put the statement out on the 7th of October, which, of course, was completely emasculated by the uh, Access Hollywood audio tape and the dumping of the John Podesta emails all in the same day. So our message kind of got lost, which was unfortunate. You mentioned that that there were those who argued that saying something about it publicly would actually magnify it. What was the logic behind that? that well, point if of the view? president of the United States went on, you know, primetime television made a big announcement about that, that was that was a concern. That uh, you know, that's the lo- that's that's all the logic there is. That if if he spoke about it. As president of the United States, this would serve to magnify the, or exaggerate, perhaps, in the minds of some, what the Russians were doing. And maybe that stemmed from uh, implicit, I don't know this, but implicit view that, in the end, Hillary Clinton would win the election anyway. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with more discussion. In a world where every degree, every dollar, every defender, and every domain is connected, seeing every angle is essential. That's why Raytheon works across networks, markets, and continents, combining human ingenuity with artificial intelligence to outpace and outmatch every threat, to protect commercial enterprise, critical infrastructure, and mission-critical systems. 
to deliver trusted, innovative solutions that secure our way of life and defend every side of cyber. This is Raytheon, making our increasingly connected world a safer place. Because when everything is connected, security is everything. So after the election, Jim, the administration took action to impose costs on Russia for what it had done in an attempt to deter them going forward. And I remember at the time that, that I argued publicly that I didn't think it was enough to deter Putin. I'd noticed that you wrote in the book that you did not think the administration's response was commensurate with the action on the part of Russia. Can you talk about that a little yeah, bit? Well, that was, that was a personal view. I mean, there were countervailing factors. And as you know, having yourself spent a lot of time in a sit room, you know, you're just one voice. But that was my view. And I, even when the, the sanctions we did take, which, you know, after the election on the 29th of December, you know, expelling the 35 Russian operatives and the closing the two dotches particularly, I always consider that simply phase one, that that would be followed up by the subsequent administration. But in the coulda, woulda, shoulda department, yeah, I wish that we had done that earlier and that we had actually caused more pain for the Russians than we did. But it was better than nothing, and we did do a lot of things. Notably, I might add, the fact that President Obama did directly confront President Putin about their meddling. And I guess John Brennan did the same with uh, he did. with his well, counterpart. John, yeah. John did so with his counterpart. Jim, last question on Russia. Um, you've made a lot of news in the last couple of weeks by writing that you believe, not an IC, not an intelligence right. community view, but your own personal view, that Russia's actions affected the outcome of the election. Why do you, why do you say that? Well, first, uh, I need no news to you, but I need to just restress for listeners that the intelligence community made no pronouncement about that. Didn't even look at it as a question. No, we did not. The intelligence community didn't have the authority, the capability, the resources to look at whether or not what the Russians did affected the outcome of the election. We didn't make a call on that. But break, break, on the 20th of January at noon, I became a private citizen. So what I wrote in the book is what I will call informed opinion based on pretty good understanding of what the Russian, the magnitude of what the Russians did, how massive it was. It touched probably 126 million voters. And the fact that the election turned on fairly narrow margin, 80,000 votes or so in three states. To me, it stretches logic and credulity to think that that massive effort didn't affect the outcome of the election, given how closely decided it really was. And so that, as I say, is an informed opinion. People can take issue with it. But as I've thought about it, and as I've watched what has unfolded since I left the government, it simply served to reinforce that conviction. That is not, I have to emphasize, anyway, an indictment of anybody who voted for Mr. Trump. What it is an indictment of is the Russians and our toleration of their doing that. And given the fact that we do not seem to have deterred Putin, do you think he'll be back at this this fall in 2020? I do. I do. I think they succeeded beyond their wildest expectations, I think. and People are getting medals you, because of this well, in of course, Moscow. Sure. And, and when you think about it, with, with a fairly modest expenditure of resources on their part, really, 
they achieved remarkable success, notably in exploiting the schisms and the polarization in this country. And they had messages for everybody, Black Lives Matter, white supremacists, pro-Muslim, anti-Muslim, pro-gun control, anti-gun control, pro-abortion, anti-abortion, didn't matter. What they were interested in, and they succeeded, was exploiting all these tribal realities and the, the polarization that in, that ensues accordingly. That you know suggests a pretty good understanding on their part of American society. Absolutely, I think the Russians are uh, students of this country, and uh, particularly their intelligence services, and, and they they make a thing out of this about understanding the dynamics in our country and how to exploit them. Jim, your decision to speak out about the president about his words and his actions is unusual for a former military officer, unusual for a former intelligence officer. Why are you doing it? Uh, that's a great question, Michael. And you're right. The the, uh, the most pushback I've gotten has been from my two camps, that is uh, military and the intelligence community. And uh, people will uh, feel strongly that Folks like you and me or seniors in the intelligence community, once they leave, should just go quietly. So I try to explain this in the book. My dad was an uh, Army signal intelligence officer uh, starting in World War II, and he, he stayed with it for 28 years, and I kind of followed in his footsteps. And, of course, he instilled in me early on great respect for the president as commander-in-chief. I served, I toiled in the trenches of intelligence for every president since uh, John Kennedy. Been a political appointee in both Republican and Democratic administrations. And I did serve 34 years in the military to include two combat tours in Southeast Asia. So it's my very being to want to support uh, the president of the United States, particularly in his role as commander-in-chief. This president makes that very difficult because I feel that our institutions and values are under assault both from an external source, the Russians, and from an internal source, our own president. And I got off to a bad start with him, I'll admit, when uh, after we briefed him at Trump Tower on the intelligence community assessment, of course, he five days later referred to us in a press conference as Nazis. And I felt I had to speak uh, up on behalf of the great men and women of the intelligence community and uh, not let that go by. And uh, since then, one consistent thing about President Trump is a great aversion to anything that calls to question the legitimacy of his election. And that started with uh, intelligence community assessment, which I thought was a great example of truth to power. You know, one of the things that I was personally concerned about as I spoke out and spoke in favor of Secretary Clinton was that the president then uh, the Republican uh, nominee for president, uh, the Republican candidate for president, was seeing what I was saying and what Mike Hayden was saying publicly and was thinking that these guys are examples of the intelligence community being political. And and do, do you worry about that at all? Yeah, I do. I mean, and it's a valid concern. But I felt that my greater concern about the assaults on our institutions of values outweighed that. I certainly understood the downsides of speaking out. And I guess you can call that political. Uh, I don't feel that way. I don't feel lined with one party or the other. I never have. I've voted both ways. 
as I said earlier, I've served in both Republican and Democratic administrations. This is about the country and what's best for the United States and, and why I think right now it's, it's endangered. So how, how worried are you about the country and where we're headed? I worry about it a lot, Michael. This is a real test of our, our resilience as a country, as a system of governance. It's a real test. The only uh, real dispute that my great collaborator, Trey Brown, and I had was how to end the book, the last three pages. So we wrote a very dark ending. We wrote a happy face ending, and we didn't like either one. And it simply ended up by saying that the United States has endured traumas in the past, notably the Civil War and a trauma that I lived through in its aftermath, Vietnam. And in both cases, we eventually emerged the better and the stronger for it, and I just stop. There's some pretty fundamental underlying issues here, right, that it just seems to me that if we don't get our arms around um, deep economic anxiety, deep cultural anxiety, that if we don't get our arms around, it's going to be difficult to get beyond this. But that's just a, that's just a personal view as well. Well, I think the biggest well. thing we need to focus on, and which I think is very much seems to be very much in dispute, it shouldn't be, but that is what is truth. And in, in an era of alternative facts where truth is relative, to use the latest turn of phrase, this is very dangerous uh, for us as a nation. And all these other considerations, you know, the attacks on the media, the attacks on the intelligence and law enforcement community, the whole notion of, of an independent uh, judiciary, uh, and many other features of free our, media. our country, uh, free media, are in jeopardy. And a lot and a lot of this has to do with defining what is knowing what is truth and by the way the russians were past masters at that because they exploited it by simply saying things that cast doubt on whether truth is even knowable uh and that that's a insidious and dangerous thing you know one of the things that strikes me in looking at all this is is as an intelligence officer for 33 years looking at other countries that I saw this sort of thing right. play out elsewhere. And sometimes it ended well and sometimes it didn't. You know, if you look at Zimbabwe or Venezuela, right, it can end pretty bad. Well, your old agency has done great things in measuring instability in other countries. And uh, does an excellent job of cataloging that. And it's kind of uh, disturbing that when we look at ourselves, we are beginning to exhibit many of the same characteristics of instability that we have always looked at outwardly at other countries for. Jim, I just want to ask you one more question. I started the podcast in the introduction by saying that I thought you were one of the most experienced intelligence officers ever produced by our nation, and perhaps the best officer ever produced by our nation. And as you mentioned a few minutes ago, your father was an intelligence officer, and you tell a story in the book that resulted in him saying to you that he thought he may have found his successor. <laughs> can you can you tell that story? Because I I, yeah. I I well I uh, thought it was pretty special. Uh, thanks, Michael. Uh, and, and thanks for the compliment, by the way. Well, as typical military families, whenever we move from post to post, my mother and dad would typically park my sister and me at my grandparents 
one of the grandparents. While I went on to the next duty station, got settled in quarters or, or off post, then they would come back and retrieve us. So this is what happened in the summer of 1953. We rotated back from uh, Japan. My dad was number two in a small Army signal intelligence a collection activity in Hokkaido, the northernmost island of Japan. And my parents dropped me at Philadelphia. Well, in the day, 1953, I was 12 years old, you can do the math, the big novelty was television. And we didn't have television where we were in Japan. So this was a huge thing to me. And my grandparents, as all grandparents are wont to do, I'm doing the same thing now, you know, spoil the grandchildren. So they allowed me to stay up and watch television as late as I wanted. So one Friday night, I was watching television, and I did the equivalent of surfing. But, of course, in those days, you had to actually walk up to the television and turn the dial. So I did that, and there were only four channels in those days in Philadelphia. And I got between channel four and five, and I heard talking. It seemed a little strange. No picture, but talking. So I held the dial for about 10, 10, 15 minutes and figured out it was the Philadelphia Police Department dispatcher, you know, responding to calls and uh, signing police cruisers to to respond. Well, in those days in Philadelphia, there's a lot of murder mayhem going on on a Friday night. So I just stood there and listened to this for a while. And after a while, my hand got tired. So I turned the dial back, make sure I could recapture it that particular frequency, and I ran out to the, my grandmother's kitchen, got some toothpicks, and stuck them in the selector dial so the selector dial would stay in that position. So I guess I hacked my grandparents' TV set. So then I just listened till about 3.30 or 4 in the morning. It was just fascinating to me. And the next night, I scrounged a map of the city of Philadelphia, and I started plotting out police calls. And then uh, the police will use brevity codes like 10-4, 10-6, 10-8. So I got a set of three-by-five cars, and I started keeping records on, on these codes. And over time, you can figure out what they meant. Then I, by plotting where the police calls went, you can figure out the high crime areas in Philadelphia. And over time, I, I figured out what the police district boundaries were in the city of Philadelphia. And the fact that the officers in the greater lieutenant and above had their unique call signs, and I started keeping records on all this. So about three weeks later, my parents come back to retrieve us, my sister and me. My dad sort of casually asked me, so what have you been doing this summer? So I whip out my map, my, my card files, and I gave my dad a pretty good discourse for about 20 minutes on how the Philadelphia Police Department is organized and how it operates, where the high crime areas are, who the key figures in the police department are. And I'll never forget, the, it was 65 years later, I'll never forget the expression on my dad's face. And he looked at me, he said, my God, I've raised my own replacement. <laughs> so that's when I first knew I was going to be an intelligence officer. And I tell the story, hopefully for humorous purposes, but also it kind of illustrates the nature of intelligence. Yes, work, it sure does. Where you pick up, you start to pick up bits and pieces of information. You start to put them into a mosaic, a picture of a larger picture of how an organization like the police department operates. And it's the same principle in intelligence, where you gather information, you test your hypotheses, and you come up with an assessment. That's a great story, Jim. Wonderful story. Jim, thank you so much for being with us. The book is Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Career in Intelligence. The author is Jim Clapper. Michael, thank you very much for having me. Especially cool to be on with you. Thank you, Jim. That was Jim Clapper. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. 
This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.